Now we are uh, in, in the middle of a passage. We've been looking at Acts chapter 15, uh, where we saw a key controversy in the life of the church. And it's centered around uh, who can be part of the church and how do you live after that. And um, at this point in the history of the church, we saw that predominantly in the beginning of the story, the church was made up of mostly Jews. But a time had come when people from all nations, people from all tribes, as it were, were coming to become part of this multicultural community. And so the controversy was around whether one needed to become uh, ethnically Jewish or uh, come into Judaism as well, besides believing in Jesus and, and follow the law of Moses as we see it from Exodus chapter 20. We saw last week that this was a very difficult question that required all the early leaders of the church to come together, and they discussed it at great length. Because it asked this fundamental question, can, does God change his mind? Is God changing his mind about Israel? Is he changing his mind about the word of God? Now, we, we, we saw how this discussion concluded last week with Peter and James standing up and saying, no, it's not that God is changing his mind, but that in the life, death, and resurrection, and the preaching of this message about Jesus, God was fulfilling what he had always intended to do, what circumcision pointed to, what the law of Moses pointed to, was being fulfilled in the message of Jesus. And so people's hearts were being transformed. The Holy Spirit was being poured out. And this all fulfilled what God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what God has set out in the law of Moses. And so this week, as we are wrapping up on this particular passage, I want us to transition from looking at how God was creating this people, God was creating this new humanity, to see, well, how were they now going to live as this new people of God? How are they going to live as this new humanity? How were they going to live as one tribe? You see, it's, it's one thing for God to make us into a new people, into a new humanity, for God to create us into one tribe, and it's another to live as a new people, to live as one tribe. It's a different question of whether God accepts you to whether we accept one another. It's a different question to whether God loves you, to whether you and I will love one another. So we're going to just read a couple of verses. We'll get back into Acts. Uh, I'll be reading from verse 19 to, to 21. And then I just want to look at a couple of questions and look at the potential solutions that they could have come up with and what they actually decided to do. So before I do that, let me just pray. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we honor you and we love to sing and, and worship and exalt you. We acknowledge that there's none like you. Uh, we acknowledge that we are here because of what you have done in our hearts and in our lives. We exist because of you. And so we want to open our hearts. Um, we thank you that we might have great musicians, we might have people who are talented, but Lord, only you can change hearts, only you can change lives. 
And so we ask that you would do what only you can do. We invite the work of your Holy Spirit within us as a body, within us as a family. Now, even as we look into how we live as one tribe, would you be the one that speaks into every heart? Would you be the one that gives us the strength, the courage, the wisdom on how to live diverse but united? Amen. Okay, great. So we're jumping into the story. I'm, I'm getting back to where uh, James had got up and he was summing up what they had discussed and what was going to be their decision going forward. And James says, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, to understand the context of the great difficulty that faced the early church in integrating Jews and non-Jews, and really to understand the context of many of Paul's letters, you have to uh, get an idea of how deeply Jews and Gentiles despised each other. Gentiles despised particularly three things, and these are mentioned by, by Craig Keener, who's a New Testament scholar and wrote uh, the, the IVP New Testament Bible background. And he said they, they despised this idea of circumcision. They, they looked down upon it. And in those days, you had public baths. So it was not something that you, you could hide. It, it was something that was out in the open when they went into the shower together. They despised this idea of Sabbath. They, they said, these, these, these Jews are just lazy. Why, why do you need to stop work one day a week? And they despised their dietary laws. You see, pork was not only the most eaten, it was the favorite meat in the Greco-Roman world. And it was really offensive and insulting for somebody to, to call your favorite food unclean. Not only did they consider their, their, their diet unclean, but it meant that Jews didn't mix much with the Gentiles. They, they couldn't attend the parties because they, they couldn't attend the food. It might have blood, it, it might be pork, it, it might have been offered to idols. And so they were, they were an exclusive club. Not only were they exclusive, they said they were exclusive. They said they were, they were God's special people. Everyone else, they, they called you guys. It was us, us and them. And so Gentiles really despised us. And as we, as we heard last week, the, the feeling was, was more than mutual. In fact, if a Jewish girl or guy decided to get married to a Gentile, rather than attending the funeral, the family Rather than attending the wedding, the family would hold a funeral. And here we are. We've had a great discussion. We've seen how God is making them into one people through the work of Jesus. But how are they going to live this out? How, how can they bring these people who despise one another and the Jews with, with great cause well, one solution could be, hey, it's, it's so hard to join non-Jews 
and Jews. Why, why, why don't we have a, a Jewish church? Let, let, let's have a Jewish service and let's then have a, a Gentile service, right? That way you guys can, can follow your traditions. Nobody needs to offend anyone. Jews, go your own way. We'll go our own way. I mean, it's, it's so hard mixing English and, and, and Kiswahili. Why, why don't we just have, you know, churches that, that do Kiswahili and, and churches that do English? I mean, it's, it's hard mixing Luo and Kikuyu and people who've been to college and people who haven't been to college. Let's just have churches that are for people who are educated. It's hard to mix dynasty and hustler. Let's, let's separate the two. There's one solution. The other solution is, hey, you Jews, can't you just stop being so Jewish? I mean, Christ has come. You're saved by grace through faith. Why, why don't you stop this whole thing about pork and, and circumcision? Just, just stop being so Jewish. And this is the answer of, of communism, right? That for us to, to all get along, we have to be the same. Let's, let's not have religion. Let's not have this thing of, uh, I'm from this tribe. Let's just have one language. Let's just have one way of life. Everybody earn the same money. Let, let, let's do everything the same. Homogeneity will produce unity. Hey, you, you non-Kenyans, why, why can't you just be Kenyan? Just, just, just learn Kiswahili. Why, why can't you just enjoy goat meat? And, and, and start your sentence with me, I. Or, or non-Kenyans can be like, hey, you Kenyans, why can't you stop being so Kenyan? Why, why, why do you have to drink so much chai and eat so many mandazi? Why do you have to love goat meat? And before coming to Kenya, for, for those who... who I know where I'm from Zimbabwe, so I'm neutral in this whole discussion. <laughs> I, I'd never heard about the philosophy of Julius Nyerere. It's called Ujamaa, his familyhood. And, and I've heard Kenyans talking about it, saying how there's much less tribalism in Tanzania. Because what Julius Nyerere did is that he... He brought people from different parts of Tanzania and he collectivized them, which is kind of like the socialist system where they had to live in villages and they all had to adopt the same language, same lifestyle, work together. And essentially they, they became less connected and they, they lost their tribal identity and, and took on this new national identity. And Kenyans are like, man, that's, that's what we need in Kenya. See, but the, the vision of the church is not meant to be homogeneous, where you lose your cultural identity, but diverse. Look at what John saw in Revelation 7, verse 9. He says, After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. And you kind of ask yourself, how, how could... John tell that these people were from every nation, tribe, and language. 
I mean, he, he could see it in, in the world they were. Not just their features, maybe the way they were dressed, maybe the way they spoke. God is not looking for this homogeneous unity. He's looking for unity and diversity. So the solution is not for us to, to separate into groups of people who think like us, talk like us, eat like us. Neither is it trying to conform one another to a particular culture. Instead, through the work of the cross and the power of God's Spirit, different as we are, we are to live as one tribe and so be a people who astound the world. And as I, as I look at what James says, I, I want to draw out three pieces of practical wisdom that the early church exercised. The first one is that they distinguished between what the gospel required and cultural preferences. Secondly, they showed an appreciation of other people's culture, even above their own. And thirdly, they pursued deep cross-cultural integration. So we'll start by looking at how we can distinguish between what the gospel requires and our cultural preferences. And in verse 19, right at the beginning of the passage that I read, we, we see James saying something that is fairly radical for a Jew to say. He says, let's not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. He's saying that there's certain things that we could require of them, even though for us they've been part of our heritage for 1,500 years, even though we, we've been given these things through Scripture by God himself speaking to us, let's, let's not trouble the Gentiles. He says just... Let's ask them to, to keep from idols, abstain from sexual immorality, blood, and strangled animals. And so what we see James doing here is that he's separating between the gospel, what the gospel requires, and what their culture, what Jewish cultural preferences were. And this is staggering because of their heritage and history. Now, the question quickly arises, is, 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 is James saying that, hey, let's just ask the Gentiles to keep from these things, idols, sexual immorality, blood, and all of that, but it's okay for them to murder, lie, and steal? Right? Didn't Paul say that, hey, we're, we're not under law, but under grace? Is James saying that this, guys, there's now no longer universal morality or godliness? Is he saying that, hey, there's no standard of right and wrong. There's no objective standard of right and wrong. Let's just keep from offending one another. That the, the, the ultimate goal, the ultimate good is to be tolerant. Of course not. You see, in, 
what was under consideration here was not morality or godliness. Because this is addressed in several places in the writings of the New Testament. What James is saying is that the Mosaic law, the Mosaic system, was not the standard. Because in Christ's coming and embodying and fulfilling the law and being God in human form, Christ himself became the new standard. Christ is now the rule of life for the follower of Christ and for the believer. And this is why Paul says, we don't serve in the oldness of the letter, but we serve in the newness of the Spirit. Listen to, to what Paul further says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, so Paul is saying this, there's, there's something called being under the law. I became as one under the law. But then he distinguishes himself, though he was a Jew. He says, though not by being myself under the law. So we see Paul has moved from being under the law to not being under the law. Something radical has changed in his life. And he said that he, he did that to win those who were under the law. And then he talks about the Gentiles and he says, to those outside the law, those who hadn't received the law of Moses, I became as one outside of the law. But then he adds this, he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now, I want to kind of explain this because I think it's really important with the diagram, which I hope will come up on the screen. So, what we're saying here is that God in the fabric of who he is, in his, by, by his nature and his character, is, is a moral being. God delineates between right and wrong, good and bad. That's, that's something that's objective truth that comes from God. And it is internal because God is eternal. And at some point in the history of humanity, particularly in the history of Israel, he gave them the Mosaic law. And Paul tells us that this was 430 years after Abraham. And within it, it contains both moral law, that is what expresses God's eternal morality, but also it's got some things that are temporarily and, and culturally limited because they were meant to point to Christ and they were meant to preserve the nation of Israel. With the coming of Christ, Paul talks about this law of Christ. Not that there's anything bad or wrong about the law of Moses. But that it, it represented a covenant between God and Israel. And so now we are in a new covenant that is through Christ. And we live by faith in Christ. Does it mean that we ignore the law of Moses? Does it mean that there are parts of our Bible that we kind of say, just pull out, just walk around with uh, Gideon's New Testament and Proverbs, and that's all you need to read? No. Because what God gave to Israel remains Scripture. 
And he says that all scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for correction, rebuking, teaching, instructing to righteousness. But we now look at it through the lens of Christ. Christ becomes our interpretation. And there might be this thinking that, hey, since Paul said we're not under law and under grace, let's let's do away with commandments. Let's let's do away with with a standard and a rule for living. No, when when Paul says we're not under law, he's saying we're not under Mosaic law. You see, the, the whole idea of being a disciple, of coming into Christ's kingdom, It's about living under Christ's rule. And Christ has a lot to say. So when James is saying, hey, let's not trouble the Gentiles, he's not saying the only rule is that there are no rules. That each one of us can now become our own little gods and decide what's right for me, what's, what's wrong for me. No, that was the original sin in the garden. Wanting to have this choice of what's right and wrong. What James is saying is, hey, being a disciple of Christ and what Christ teaches us is enough. Because in Christ, not only do we fulfill the law of Moses, we surpass it. You see, where the law said, Anyone who wants to divorce should give his wife a certificate of divorce. Jesus said, Moses only said that to you because your hearts were hard. But our hearts have been renewed. They've been softened. So rather than do not commit adultery, now Christ sets us free from even looking at a woman with lust. And we say, no, If if my eye causes me to sin, I'd rather cut it off. If my hand causes me to sin, I'd rather cut it off. Where where the law said, eye for an eye, let let, let the punishment go with the weight of the offense. Jesus says, no, if, if somebody does something evil to you, do good to them. Bless those. Love your enemies. So the law of Christ actually doesn't put us at a lower standard. It removes the standard and enables us to fly. John Bunyan, in one of his poems, said, Run, John, run, the Lord demands, but gives me neither hands nor feet. It's greater news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's the difference between the law of Christ. He doesn't say, do this and you shall live. As the law of Moses did, it says, hey, because you are alive, now this is how you're to live. So friends, we need to separate between what the gospel requires and what our culture or our cultural preferences. Now for us to be on the same page, I just want to take some time to define what I mean by culture. I want us to move from separating the gospel and our culture to being able to appreciate other people's culture. And this is what one 
professor said, if you look him up on Wikipedia, you'll see he's, you can trust what he's saying. Culture is the collective programming of the human mind that distinguishes the members of one group from those of another. Culture, in this sense, is a system of collectively held values. Now, this often involves the what and the how of our lives. And if we're bringing it into our gatherings together, it might involve the what and the how of our worship. The what and the how of what we wear and, and how we wear it, our, our language, how we get married, our art. And the what and the how is driven by the why. And normally this is captured in our stories about who we are as a people. And we, we are quite subconscious about these stories. And sociologists call this the worldview. So there's a worldview that shapes our culture. And the goal of discipleship, the goal of teaching in the church, the, the, the goal of admonishing and, and instructing one another is not necessarily so that we might homogenize our culture, but it's so that we might replace our worldview. Because once we have worked on the why, the motivations of the heart, the sense of identity, we want to see that lived out within the culture. And so in one sense, there's no such thing as Christian culture. What there is, is Christianity lived out in different cultures. And this is part of the genius of the gospel. Rather than putting down and suppressing our cultural identity, it lifts it up and sanctifies it and says every culture belongs to God. You see, because in all cultures, there are things that open us up to God, and there are things that close us to God, and there are things that are simply neutral. And the goal of the gospel is to bring down those things that oppose God while bringing up those things that are for God and leaving the neutral as they are. And this is so that God would be glorified in all the multifaceted beauty of the cultures, the nations, the tribes of the world. Scripture says that when, when that is happening, that is a sign and a wonder, even for angels and demons. Friends, if, if God so values culture, then it calls us, to appreciate other cultures. It took incredible humility for this council of mostly Jews to realize that one doesn't have to live as a Jew to be a Christian. Despite having that heritage of being God's special people, they came to realize that other cultures were a legitimate expression of their ancient faith. This could only be the work of the Holy Spirit. This is why when James writes the letter, he said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. This, this wasn't a work of careful exegesis or uh, careful discussion. This was a work of God saying, hey, I'm lifting up all cultures of the world. Now, the thing with culture is that we live in it, 
We are very protective of it, and we hardly realize this. And I've been helped by a book called The Culture Map by a lady called Erin Mayer. And in it, she, she tells this story of two young fish that are swimming along. And then they meet an older fish. And the older fish says to them, Morning, boys. How's the water? And then as they swim away, the one younger fish looks at the other and says, Hey, what in the world is water? And basically what she's saying is that our culture is like water is to fish. Fish don't realize they're in water until they're taken out of it. And sometimes you don't realize that you've got a culture until you're taken out of it and you see other people's culture. This is what she says further on. She said, speaking about a person's culture often provokes the same type of reaction as speaking about his mother. Most of us have a deep protective instinct of the culture we consider our own. And though we criticize it bitterly ourselves, we may become easily incensed if someone from outside the culture dares to do so. And so what it means is that even though we love to complain about our culture, deep down we think our culture is the best. And when we look at other people's cultures, we don't say they're different. We, we are just different, no? What we say is we are better. And Aaron Meyer, in a book which I highly recommend if you work in a multicultural environment, or even if you just want to grow in cultural awareness, she, she's got these eight things that she talks about and gives a scale of, of different cultures. And I found it particularly helpful because I've lived and worked and been in church in multicultural environment for the last 16 years, and I, I found it so insightful. And I'm just going to highlight some of them, but not all of them. She talks about communication and talks about how you've got high context cultures and low context cultures. And I know, you know this is spoken about elsewhere, but basically a high context culture is where you communicate not just with words. In a high context culture, everything about you communicates. Not just everything about you, but even your shared history communicates. And so, I might decide that I'll be wearing Sunday best. Why? Because I'm saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm going to be praising God. So what I wear has to reflect my devotion to God. Right? That's, that's high context. But not only is that high context, African cultures generally would be considered high context. And so when you are speaking, or if I'm speaking to someone who's an African, whether it's in the work context or whatever other context, I not only listen with my ears, I listen with my eyes as well. I, I look at the body language. I, I look at the, pose, the posture. I, I look at the expression on the face. And so if I ask somebody, if I ask Joe, for example, would you take my family home after the meeting? Now, Joe just needs to say yes or no, right? That's a simple question. But now Joe is in a difficult place because it's very difficult to say no to someone you'd consider an authority to you. 
right? So if, 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 he's, an, if he's unable to do that, Joe begins to look uncomfortable. Joe might have been smiling. Then the smile is frozen on his face. And then Joe might begin to explain to me all the things that he's got to do. He's yet to answer. Now, if I'm from a low-context culture, I'm not reading everything else. So when Joe is telling me everything that he has to do, I'm now thinking of solutions for Joe. Like, oh, okay, Joe, you need to do that. Okay, you know what? What time do you have to be there? Oh, you, need, you only need to be there at 3. Okay, it only takes uh, 25 minutes for you to go and come back. Problem solved. Now, Joe is in a difficult place because he's explained why he couldn't do it, but I haven't caught the cues, right? And normally what happens is that people will agree to do certain stuff, and then they just don't do it. Not only do they just don't do it, they don't give an explanation. Why? Because you should have known, I can't do it. You, you, you should have known in the expression of my face. Now, if you're from a low context culture, you'll be like, you know, the Bible says that your yes be a yes and your no be a no. You know, what you did is you told a lie. This is, this is high context, this is low context. Or, there's certain things for example, if I introduce my mother-in-law, if I introduce my mother-in-law to a fellow African, they will know that even if you had this posture where it's like, you know, I'm just carefree, it's, I'm just going about my business, immediately the posture will change. If I say, hey, meet my mother-in-law, a fellow African will immediately stoop if it's a man. You immediately start to show deference because you know, right? The mother-in-law has to be respected. Or if I said, hey guys, we, you know, we need to have a nyamachoma and this is happening, we need to spend some money. And I told you, my in-laws are visiting. Or I've got to visit my in-laws. What I'm saying is that, hey, all my money is currently tied up. <laughs> I've got some family business I need to take care of. You don't need to explain further. Because we know. Why? Because there's context. This is high context. Now, low context, everything has to be sp spelled out, right? This is why even contracts, it's people like, you know, there, there's certain cultures that don't respect contracts. You know, let's write it down completely in the contract. For, I tell you, for many Africans, you can put in the contract whatever you want. They're still going to do just whatever they want to do. And so the relationship is not based on a contract to say, no, we've got a contract that we sign. It's based on how much we value that relationship, right? If I value that relationship, I'll go above and beyond. I'll do things for you that you can't put in a contract. I've seen this also. It really affects work relationships because people be like, hey, this is what your contract says. Actually, you're creating distance with that person when you try and hold them to a contract. If, if you want to build relationship, I learned this on my last job, right? I, I was working on a farm, and one day the, the guys took me aside, said, hey, Cephas, you know, you don't greet people. Like, we used to wake up super early, start work, and the way you greet people in our culture, in that culture, is, okay, 
right? Let's say we've got an emergency on the farm or something that urgently needs to get done. I'll greet you and I won't be in a rush. You can't, you can't be in a rush. So I say, good morning. You say, good morning. This is all translated. And then I say, how did you sleep? And then you say, I slept very well, thank you. How did you sleep? And then I have to respond. And then I have to ask, how did your wife and your kids sleep? And then you respond. And then you ask me, how did my wife and how did my kids sleep? Okay, those are just the preliminaries, right? And all this time, I'm watching your body language, if there's anything that could have been distressful. If there was, we start by addressing that first. We, we can't just move straight on to business. Why? Because people are not machines. That's the thinking. Now, if you're like, you know, Kenyans, you call them on the phone, Sema, like, no, I can't just talk. You haven't even asked how I'm doing. You haven't even asked about my kids. How, how can I talk to you? How can I open up? And sometimes we'll be like, no, you know what? These guys, they're, they're very closed. They're, they don't open up. Of course, you can't expect them to open up until they've come to your home, sat down for dinner and pretended like they've got nothing to talk about. Then they get into the real issues about their lives. That's how people connect. Because it's high context. And she talks about evaluating. And this is about giving feedback. There's some cultures that love direct feedback. Hey, look, if I, if I was doing the projector, if I was preaching, you know, you can come and say, hey, the sermon was great. Um, I would have appreciated if... I didn't understand this point. Maybe it would be better next time if you just listed all your points at the beginning and then repeated them at the end. Direct feedback. I love it. Helps me improve. Now, the other cultures always say, hey, hold on. We don't even know each other that well for you to be telling me what I've done wrong. Right? So is that all? Is that all you got from the sermon? That, you know, my, I didn't say the points at the beginning and at the end? Man, you're supposed to be listening to Jesus. Well, what, why are you considering my points? Why? Because there are certain cultures that give indirect feedback. So you'll hear people say, yeah, no, it, it was great. It was great. Um, you know, have you thought about, you know, one thing that would also be great is that if on the projector we did A, B, C, D. You know, he doesn't attack the feedback he's giving. Comes as a suggestion. Or, you know, uh, yeah, maybe next time we could think about possibly. Now, you need to catch that you need to be on the same wavelength. Say, oh, okay, that's, what, that's what's going on. And so imagine if somebody who gives direct feedback, a culture like that, if you're on the same serving team, or if you're doing stuff together, and then you're like, hey, we're finished. Let's evaluate what we're doing. Okay, we did A, B, C, D well. You know, when you sang that note, it was a little bit too high. And now, like feeling defensive. I'm, I'm not singing again call the worship leader like, ah, I'm stopping singing. Why? Ah, no, I've, you know, now I've got a small baby and it's much more busier. You've mixed high context and indirect feedback. 
which unfortunately we Africans are. She talks about leading, how there are some cultures that, that love hierarchical structure. So it's like, if you look at Russia, they, they want to have a strong leader. They, they, they don't want a leader who's asking, hey guys, what shall we do? And somebody who's running opinion polls. And you, you, you look at some African churches and you think, yeah, that's what, that's what the, the pastor should tell us what to do. Right? Well, this business of voting, you are the man of God. You, you've got the power for the hour. You've got the revelation from the mountain. Just point the way forward as Moses did and we know that Red Sea is going to be parted. And so if we, if we, we can have church that's done like that, it's like, oh man. And if you're from a more egalitarian, it's like, these guys, they, they just do whatever they want. They don't consult, they don't talk. Your ideas are not accepted. And I've noticed it even playing out within our church and within our, our leadership meetings. You see, because if you look at what happens in this story, is that Peter and James stand up at the end. Because in that culture, if you've got a leadership position, people will defer to your opinion. So if they'd stood up at the beginning and said, hey guys, this is what we're doing. The, the case would have been closed. There's no discussion. And people would have gone home with their disgruntlements. And so, when we have meetings together, you know, some cultures are like, when we're brainstorming, you have to be on your feet with your ideas. Everybody, get your ideas in. And it's like, this meeting is happening. See, but when, in my culture... When I get into a meeting, what I do is I wait for the older people to speak. That's, that's what you've taught. How can a, a young guy like me just, you know, got a 70-year-old there, he has to wait for me? You listen. And if you are the leader, if you really want to know what people think, you don't start by talking. You say, hey guys, what do you think about this? You, you don't even give your initiative. Then everybody talks. It, it takes long. Because everyone is looking at what's the hierarchy here. What's, we're all trying not to step on each other's toes. So it's, it's very diplomatic. We give our ideas. If I know it's slightly different from what the other person thinks, I have to cushion and couch it so that we can still have harmony. And so you, different cultures have different ways of communicating and creating harmony and leading. And then you've got disagreeing. Some Cultures are okay with confrontation. I don't agree with you, right? I can disagree with Simba, and our relationship is still intact. I'm not pulling him down. I'm not saying there's anything bad or wrong about him. But in some cultures, the moment I disagree with you, and especially in public, it's like, man, you, you don't even respect me. You know, how, how uh, I asked that the mic should be put on the left and then you disagreed, you said they should be put on the right and in front of everyone. Different cultures have different ways of disagreeing. Then different cultures have different ways of scheduling. Some are linear, and we're talking about time now. Some are non-linear. Now for the linear culture, time is a commodity that is measurable and can be spent and lost. It's, it's, 
It's, it's, it's finite. You always have to be using it well and productively. Because if you don't, you're losing it. So if we lose five minutes, that's five minutes of our lives that cannot be regained. This is gone, poof, just like that. And so this is really important. And then there are some cultures where, where time is non-linear. You see, time is a suggestion. <laughs> so one pastor visited another country and he was meant to speak and he asked at the church, hey, what time does church start? He was British. And the people looked at him and said, almost like, dude, what a, what a dumb question. When the people arrive, of course. I mean, what's the point of having church with no people? But now he's thinking, no, 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 no. You see, if we start on time, then next week, they will know they have to come on time. Time is linear. I remember, look, I'm not saying Zimbabweans are better than Kenyans. I remember calling some guys to a meeting. We said, this is the time. Time strikes like, are we still meeting, guys? Yeah, 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 yeah. we're on our way. Hour later, guys arrive. I'm like, guys, let's call off this meeting. Like, we, I've got something else that I've planned for an hour from now. Brief explanation, no apology. I mean, how can you apologize for being late? It's obvious I was doing something important. <laughs> well, what, what apology do I need to give? You know, I had to go to point A and point B. Do you think if it wasn't important, I, I, I wouldn't have done it? Of course I wouldn't have done it. Have you seen the traffic lately? So now it's on this way. It's like, no, no, no. Our way is better. Now, am I saying people should not arrive on time for meetings? Meetings should not start on time. Meetings should not end on time. No. What I'm saying is that we have to realize that we've got different cultural starting points. And the moment you elevate one over another is the recipe for offense. We'll eventually say, hey, okay, guys, we can't get along on this time thing. Let's separate. We'll have a 10 o'clock service for people who want to be on time. Then let's have at 12, between 12 and 12.30. We'll just start depending on when people arrive. So if God is creating one tribe and we fail to appreciate one another's cultures, will be offended by one another. But listen to what Paul says. And essentially, the book of Romans, Paul's great letter, where he spells out that he's not ashamed of the gospel, and this is what the gospel is about, was written to create unity between Jews and non-Jews. And so scholars would say, actually, the point of what Paul was saying, you find it in Romans 15, when he says, therefore, accept one another, just as Christ Jesus accepted you. And he says, love one another with brotherly affection. So here we're not just thinking, love one another 
This is abstract. We're thinking people of different cultures love one another. People who is difficult for you to love. Because there are certain things about those other people that generally annoy you. I want you to love one another with brotherly affection. Not only that, he says, I want to outdo one another in showing honor. And so, where guys show up and like, remove my shoes by the door in your home. Can I have a pair of shoes for inside the house? I remember the first time I was asked that. I was shocked. Like, what, what is this guy talking about? Does he want to wear one of my pairs of shoes? What's going on? Say, no, I'll do one another in showing honor. If, if it's the culture to remove your shoes, get some shoes inside because it's cold or whatever, then do that. If, you know, Kenyans drink China Maziwa, and you're like, no, price of Maziwa, have you seen it? It's going up all the time. No, when they come to your house, give them China Maziwa with Mandazi. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And so if you say, hey, for me, time is non-linear. What matters is the relationship. If I know I'm meeting Herman, you know, you've got, even in this book, they've got scales, for even among Europeans. So if I know I'm meeting a German, I should know, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be on time. He's going to shoot straight, but he's not trying to hurt me. It's because that's the way you communicate in German. And so we need to become students of culture if we're going to be a cohesive church as one tribe. And this leads us to the third and final point. We need to pursue deep cross-cultural integration. Because you might be listening and think, hey, it's, 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 this is too hard for me. Look, hey, look at how old I am, man. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. But if you're taking anything out of these past three weeks, this is the biggest point. We as a church, we as individuals need to pursue deep cross-cultural integration. You see, the cross of Christ must lead us to cross-cultural integration. Now, when we look at the things that James highlights, he's not really looking at the moral aspects. Right? Because these are things that are addressed in other parts of the New Testament. What he's talking about is, hey, if non-Jews are to integrate with the Jews, this is just the, the flaw of what they need to avoid, to, not to offend the Jews, to enable this cultural integration. And we see how it affects what the non-Jews will eat. Hey, if Look, if you like black pudding, if you like mutura, if you're going to have a Jew there, just avoid it. If you like roadkill, if, if, if that's, you know, I'm, I'm contributing to the environment, I only eat roadkill, just avoid it when you have Jews coming over. 
And in all this, James is making, is asking Jews to make enormous, enormous concessions. They're enormous. You can't understand how difficult it would be for a Jew to cross that boundary and relate to a non-Jew. And you might be asking, well, what does that look like for us as one tribe? You see, it's easy to look diverse and in, in, in homogenous for 90 minutes on a Sunday. Like, guys, we, we can meet. We can, we can do this thing. We can accept one another. We sing the same songs. We listen to the same sermon. We eat. We drink the same chai and mandas. But even as soon as we're out there, I'm congregating. I'm looking for those people who are most like me. If, if I'm deaf, okay, that means we've got our community here. Right? If I'm a student, I'm, I'm, I'm with the students. If I'm in the cave, this is, this is our thing. This is how we do it. But friends, we, we need to move out of those silos. We, we need to cross those boundaries. And it's going to be uncomfortable. I mean, we had someone who's British come to our house. I'm not going to mention him by name. But I don't think we've got many British people in this church. And so I made a traditional meal from Zimbabwe. It's called sadza. Kind of like ugali, but just softer. You don't need to cut it with a knife. And he was eating it with a fork and knife. I'm like, dude, who does that? I'm never inviting you to my house again. No. You've got to be willing to be uncomfortable. Sometimes you need to eat sadza that's cut with a knife and just stomach that. Right? Sometimes you need to get used to using a fork and knife. Sometimes you need to try and bite into that goat meat, tough as it is. Make that chai. Even though you can't do the chai masala, it's very hard, that spicy chai. But just try. And so if you're married, I want you to, to engage even with people who are single. And I'm not saying, hey, if you're a married man, engage with a single young lady. No. I'm saying widen your friendship circles. If you're working, engage with someone who's not working. If, if you're running a business, engage with some people who are not running business. And listen, if you're not running a business, don't engage with people who are running business just because you want to find a job. No. Engage at a real, relational, intimate, personal level. If you're Kenyan, engage with non-Kenyans, and vice versa. See, some of the greatest joys we've had while we've been here is to be invited to, to family events because we haven't seen our family in three years. And I'm not saying this so that you can invite me at your next family event, but I'm just saying, if you're Kenyan, come on, welcome people into your family circle. And I want to leave us with a challenge as I close. Why don't you aim to meet for a meal with someone from a different culture in the church in the next two weeks? If two weeks is too short notice for, 
our linear, time linear friends in the next month. And then aim to include that in your calendar once every month, once every two months. Now, friends, we are not one tribe because it's such a cool, vibey name. We're not, we don't have a diverse church because we set out to attract people from different nationalities and cultures. We are one tribe because Christ gave his blood on the cross to make us one. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the working of the Holy Spirit, he's making us into one tribe. This is our eternal destiny. We saw it in Revelation. Now it's up to us to live as one tribe. Let's pray. Yeah, Lord Jesus, we remember how you said when you are lifted up, you draw all men to yourself and that uh, you sacrificed your life, you gave your blood that we might have peace with God and be accepted with one Father and all become one family, to become one people, one temple. We remember how you said if anyone destroys the temple of God, he himself will be cut out. And Lord, we, we don't want to destroy your temple. We don't want to destroy your work through cultural pride. Hey Lord, we, we pray that it would be like as what Christ himself did in humbling himself and dying on the cross would be clothed with that same attitude and would consider others above ourselves. May I consider other cultures even better than my own. May I not despise those who are different or look down upon them, but may we be a church that outdoes one another in showing honor. And Lord, even as we said, this is the work of your spirit. It's not something that we can motivate or inspire into. This is something that you do by your spirit. And so we ask for this work deep within us. Lord, where there's been hostility, where there have been dividing walls, whether within Kenyan tribes, whether between Kenyan and non-Kenyan, whether it's between non-Kenyans and non-Kenyans, we ask that by your spirit, you would demolish those dividing walls. I pray that we as a church would not just be diverse for 90 minutes on a Sunday, but our lives, our friendships, our relationships would reflect the deep work of your cross. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Amen.